Hello and welcome to another episode of Climbing on the Bookshelf. This time I'm talking with big wall innovator, visionary and climber John Middendorf. In the 1980s, Middendorf climbed some of the hardest walls in Yosemite and Zion, and in 92, he climbed one of the largest rock walls in the world, Great Trango Tower in Pakistan. In Flagstaff, Arizona, he developed, with his A5 team, the best portal edges in the world. The design is still being used and developed to this day. He's committed many years into researching history of tools and techniques of climbing, and has now produced two comprehensive volumes of early climbing tools and techniques. The two volumes are called Mechanical Advantage, Tools for the Wild Vertical. Volume 1 mostly covers European tools and techniques up to the 1930s and Volume 2 is mostly North American tools and techniques up to the 1950s. If you're really into climbing and research on climbing tools and gear history, head over to bigwalls.net or bigwallgear.com or even his YouTube channel after you've listened and check out all his research and climbing pages. It's an amazing site. You could be there for hours reading his stuff. It has his cliff notes and lists of ascents he's done, sketches and ideas for the portal edge and that sort of stuff, and there's also links on where to get his volumes from. You could easily waste a day just on those two sites. I'd like to say a massive thank you to John for giving up his precious time to talk with me as I caught up with him just before he was about to go and do a talk in a friend's climbing gym in Flagstaff and also a multi-day kayak down the Grand Canyon, family in tow. I was really excited to chat with him, and I hope you learn as much as I did once you've listened. I've broken our chat into two episodes. I'll release episode two in a week or so. This one mainly covers the portal edge stuff, and the other episode is new volumes, Mechanical Advantage, Tools for the Wild Vertical. If you've not listened to his episode on the Enormacast back in 2017, go and check that episode out too. Just to remind you that you can pick up John's new volumes from blurb.com, and there's links on where to get them on bigwallgear.com and bigwalls.net. Hope you enjoy this one. Hello. Hello, John. Hi, Stuart. How are you? How are you? Very well, thank you. And you? Good, yeah. Very good. Good. It all connected well, and it was quite straightforward, is that? Yeah, I downloaded the app, and it seemed to work a little better, yeah. Oh, nice. Excellent. So how are you? Are you all right? Good, yeah. Here in Ohio in the U.S., we normally live in Tazi, but we're here visiting yeah. family. And this morning I've been listening to some of your podcasts with Katie. Oh, oh great. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for that. Thanks. I really appreciate that. So you all set up. Um, have you got a drink with you and yeah. all that sort of stuff? And Yes, and... it's good timing because I've actually, I, I haven't done a slideshow for decades really but yeah I'm doing, I'm doing one next week in flagstaff because we're going there for a grand canyon river trip oh nice and, and I, I thought i'd do one at the gym there which was yeah built by a friend of mine and uh, stan mish and so yeah so it's good timing i'm kind of reflecting on all these old this all, all my old stuff all your old stuff there so so yeah that's great that's great um great. so how's the weather over there is it all right uh, it's uh, rainy here in Ohio right now, oh, and it was okay. very hot the other day. Uh, okay. But yeah, we, we usually spend a week here visiting my wife, Jenny's okay. family, nice. and it's, uh, Ohio's actually quite a nice nice place, really. Uh, we're in the UK. We're in the south. I'm in the, I'm in the southeast of the UK. Southeast, um, yeah. Towards the coast, pretty close to the coast, within a sort of maybe, I don't know, 45 minutes drive for the coast, the south no, coast. Wales, or? Uh, no, the south coast of England. So, yeah, southeast, yeah. And at the moment, we're having a bit of a heat wave. The last sort of maybe, I'd say, four or five weeks, I think it's probably rained maybe two days. 
Um, wow. And it's been um, in the sort of mid 20, 25 degrees Celsius. So I reckon that's sort of 75 degrees plus for, yeah. for a while now. It's, it's you know. That's, it, that's hot for the UK. It is for the UK, yeah. Yeah, so so things are going well, really. I mean, the weather's nice. I mean, you know, getting outside and doing stuff. And yeah, you're not. it's not like... Uh, you're stuck in the house because it's pouring down with rain or it's cold, which is what you, what's usually like in summer in Britain. So, yeah, yeah. one time I, I went to uh, Stony Middleton and uh, okay. Derek, Derek Hurston had told me to go there. And I, I hitchhiked there when I was you know, a teenager. And, uh, and it rained about two out of three days. And, uh, <laughs> one, of the, one of the locals who was climbing there with me, he's like, yeah. this is the best summer ever. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. It's been sunny for like a couple of days and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, excellent. Excellent. <laughs> so if you don't mind, um, we'll, we'll crack on if that's all right. Sounds great. John Middendorf, welcome to Climbing on the Bookshelf. Thank you. Thank you, Stuart. Appreciate you, you inviting me. I'd like to start, if that's okay, about you talking about your early life and where you grew up for the people that don't know or haven't heard about you. Um, I'm pretty sure everybody has in the climbing world and where you first started to go out in the outdoors and when you first noticed climbing. Sounds good. Yeah. When I was uh, 14 years old, my my mom uh, decided that I was getting in too much trouble being a t- young teenager uh, during <laughs> the summer, not much t- to do. And so a cousin of ours had gone to a mountaineering school in Colorado called Telluride Mountaineering School. And so she sent me out to that. And 14 was like the minimum age you could go. And it was a tough program. I, I later did some programs with Knowles. And when I think back on what they were putting us through at the Telluride Mountaineering School, it was tough. You know, the first morning you got there, you, 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 you did calisthenics before the sun rose and then ran up a, a mile and a half up to this lake that was just above freezing. Yeah. So that was, that was the introduction. And then for the, for about five weeks, uh, we would just do these one week to nine day tours around the Colorado San Juan mountains and uh, mostly, you know, backpacking with heavy loads, but a lot of climbing too. One of the objectives was, I think it's the needles range. You know, we, we would go in there and there'd be lots of rock climbs that were moderate climbing, maybe five, two or five, three. And we would just have a rope, really. We didn't, we, maybe a rope, a couple of slings, and maybe a few beaners, carabiners. Um, but basically, that was the style of climbing I learned how to climb on these big, long rock ridges where you're finding natural blaze, you're tying in with a bullet on a coil, uh, you're blading each other safely, and often having to repel off um, with, a, with a body repel. So that, that was my, my first year of climbing, was uh, this, uh, you know, exploring the, Colorado San Juan Mountains with uh, very simple equipment, basically, but yet doing very, you know, wild exposure and pretty amazing climbs, really. And then uh, I I thought that was it, really. But then I met a friend of mine in high school, John Ely, and he was keen to climb. And so we started climbing at this local crag in Washington, D.C., where uh, called Carter Rock. And Carter Rock's sort of a, a... 15 to 20 meters high at the most, but it's got you know lots of technical sort of bouldery climbing, face climbing mostly, a few cracks, and uh, okay. and so we'd go there in top rope uh, whenever we could get a ride from one of our parents. This was in grade, you know, tenth grade, and so this is before you could drive yourself there. Yeah, 
when a teenager having their own car back then was pretty rare. So, uh, so we, you know, we basically were able to build our skills up to about five nine, five ten level just by top roping these these thin climbs. Yeah, so, what, the, so what sort of gear was this? What in the seventies was it? I guess. So yeah, that the the gear is kind of the cusp of the you know the clean climbing revolution. There were still climbers there who were hammering in pitons, but we had read Roll Robbins's uh, basic and read advanced rock craft, and and he, he was a proponent of the whole clean climbing, and yeah, he talked about how he learned about it in Britain, in fact, and uh, and so you know that was our that was that's who we were too. You know, we were clean climbers. Pitons were the old style, you know, and we were going to climb clean with these nuts, and and basically back then you had the hexes from Chenard and peck crackers were around these, these round nuts that were sometimes fit somewhere and then you had stoppers basically and and Forrest had come out with tetons and there were also these cracking ups and so you know but basically the, the tetons were very we never seemed to figure out how to use those really and the cracking ups we would use these were clean climbing hooks you know that you you could put into thin cracks but both yep. Mostly just stoppers and and even the carabiners, you know, they were aluminum carabiners, of course. They they go back to you know before World War II, but cheaper carabiners were steel. So a lot of our carabiners were steel. We had gold line ropes, which were uh, a braided rope or I'm sorry, a three ply rope that uh, was pretty stiff and nylon rope and really okay. stretchy, really yeah. stiff rope and so that was basically our gear for our first few years of climbing. Wow. There were okay. pro-on ropes, but they were, everything was quite expensive, really. We were yeah, all... Yeah, sure. Were there any sort of near misses or accidents that kind of put you off from from, from you climbing? Uh, or... Probably, yeah. I think there were, but that was sort of like how we viewed climbing. You know, we'd read, we'd read all the classic literature of the, you know, Walter Bonatti. And, and so really climbing was like, you get yourself in a situation where you're pushing your limits and you're having a big epic. You know, that was, that was kind of the goal. It's up to you to get yourself out of it. Yeah. And so after a couple of years of that, we, um, we had seen this uh, cover of National Geographic where it was uh, Galen Rowell and and team had done the first clean ascent of Half Dome. I think that was 75. And so in 1977, you know, my friend John Ely and I, we borrowed my sister's car. I think he had just gotten his license. And we we drove out to Yosemite and we climbed half them, just like we had seen in the National Geographic. And wow. we climbed all clean. and oh, Proper adventure. adventure. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, it was, yeah. you know, just mind-blowing for to be able to be up there. And the, and, and for me, that that's what we climb, climbing was all about. It was we needed to get our skills, our, our free climbing skills, solid but really it was about climbing those big spaces you know that's always what appealed to me and so everything was about training to climb from when you first went to yosemite and borrowed your friend's sister's car what what was it like the drive into yosemite and what how did that did that is that the first time that you'd seen it or obviously i think you might have seen it in magazines or whatever. And was it as awe-inspiring as, as everyone says it is the first time you see it? Absolutely. And it's still awe-inspiring. Every time I drive in, I, I always <laughs> kept going through uh, 140 um, 
to just get that view when you come out of the tunnel, you know. Oh, it's, yeah. Yeah. it's so yeah. amazing. And, uh, yeah, I mean, every time I go there, it's always that way. So it was just as inspiring for the first time. <laughs> Probably scary, too, because we knew we were sure. going to try some of these big, big walls. And you you, um, you put up a, quite a few first ascents as well over your over your time there. Yeah, well, which actually, was which is impressive. I mean, yeah, I've had, a, I've had a look at your resume, I guess. Yeah, some of the stuff that you've done is just is mind boggling at the, the time that you were doing it as well. Well, I think you know, you know, after you know, after getting this first experience as a teenager, and I mean, I never really thought I would become a climber. I thought it was just going to be something that I did as a hobby. And then, you know, I, I was really focused on becoming an engineer, basically. So I studied okay. hard in high school and I went to good universities. And but through university, I, I was always climbing and climbing was definitely a passion. When I graduated with a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering from Stanford in 1983, I actually sold all my climbing gear. And, those, oh, wow. you know, I'd done a few walls by that time. I think I had uh, been halfway up the shield. I'd done the nose. Uh, I've done the South A. I've climbed. Um, I climbed Zodiac, you know, by that time. But yeah. you know, basically, just a few of the sort of moderate walls, and uh, <laughs> and so I was, uh, you know, oh. nineteen eighty three. I was like, okay, now it's that was fun, you know. Now it's time to become an engineer and uh, get real with my life and and have responsibility. <laughs> yes, and I had a, I had an interview and a job offer out in Ohio here. Exactly where my wife is from. Oh, but wow. okay. we, we didn't meet until thirty years, forty years later, and uh, and so I bought a motorcycle, a BMW R sixty slash five, an older one, and I was going to just do my last tour. And so everything I owned was in my saddlebags. I did keep a pair of climbing shoes and a chalk bag because I I love bouldering, and I started off on my journey to to drive cross country. But I thought I just on the way I would go via Yosemite and just see it one more time to the Midwest. And uh, <laughs> I ended up uh, meeting Borda Brown, who's, who was working on the rescue team there, and his, who lived there for decades and decades. Like, he just recently moved to moved away. but um, And he invited me on the rescue team. He said, hey, we need another member on the rescue team. It's winter. And so the next thing you know, I'm on the Yosemite rescue team, climbing every day with Warner and a lot of other great people there. And, uh, but still that passion for me was like climbing the walls. And at the time, you know, this was 1984 now at the time it was really mostly the focus was really on long, free, bold, um, free climbs, you know, which, which I also did. I mean, I, you know, all the, you know, I climbed Astroman seven times and, and, uh, you know, I mean, I climbed, I loved climbing these long free routes, but that was never my sort of desire to, to just be a long free climber. It was more about these big, impossible walls and yeah. so i just started climbing lots el cap lots and uh, probably you know 10 times a year and then sure. eventually i got to the point where i figured i could do new routes on el cap and, and so i learned how to scope out the new lines and you know i could tell where which what i knew where the routes went and learned how to in the morning look at it with a telescope or binoculars and then uh, you know you know see it see if you can map it out and then also look at the evening light and try to figure out what was up there and yeah, if it sure. was possibly climbable so was it was it completely different to when you scoped it out to have a look to when you uh, were actually actually physically there was there uh, anything no. anything that stuck out and you thought well I, I don't remember seeing this well you learn by experience but 
you know, the reason why you create these complete maps on the ground is because you might be up there in a thin seam and it blanks out and there's a bulge to your right that you can't see around the corner. But if you yeah. refer back to the map you made back on the ground, you, you know there might be a good feature there that can be uh, accessed and climbed. So, so the whole idea of swinging around up there and, and that was like, that's, that was it for me. Like just being able to go up there and climb these routes, sure. know, minimum of, of bolts and just trying to naturally use uh, features that were on their wall. To yeah, sure. So how long were these, how long were these um, ascents taking you? Were they multi-day things or were they a one day? Oh, they were all, yeah, multi-day. That was it. You know, yeah. Like the time that these technical A-roots on El Cap, they yeah. required days and days. Yes. Up, yeah. I think the longest I ever spent was 10 days on, on a new route. But also, you know, I was getting good at climbing fast too. Like we did, I think I did the, uh, eighth or ninth is one day ascent of the nose during those years um one day 10 hours and a half or so nice so you know it's about climbing efficiently really and so to climb you know a route like even mescalito or pacific ocean wall which were still considered hard test pieces back then you know you know like climbing them any anybody could really climb them in 10 days but, you know, the idea was to be as efficient as possible, work hard each day, you know, have a long yeah, day, sure. get up early and uh, and climb them and, you know, so in fast times, really. Because really, you know, also Yvonne Schnard's adage that he wrote in the American Alpine Journal in the 60s, you know, he, he wrote about how Yosemite was the training ground for the greater ranges. <laughs> so at that point, I'm yep. starting to think about the greater ranges, like, okay, well, these are skills I'm learning. Uh and, and becoming accomplished at, and maybe maybe one day I'll be good enough to go to the greater ranges and and test my skills, which did end up happening. But uh, you know, you know, so so really, you know, it's like moving fast was moving fast and efficiently was part of the game, and being bold really, and trying to sure, you know, yeah. that involves being bolder than it would if you just want to take your time and make sure every placement is. Yeah. 100% perfect and so yeah great so what was the the uh, what was the the main greater range what was your first experience on one of the greater ranges because i know that you'd you've climbed great trango tower yeah because in the karakoram was that that was that wasn't your first i went to baffin island in 1986 okay and, uh, we went in the winter and not well, it was on the the edge of the season of winter because we were concerned about how we were going to get up the valley, and, uh, and so we went up when the when the river that cuts through there was still frozen, so we could take snowmobiles up. Um, I think it was like March, perhaps. But when we got up, we were going to do a new route on Asgard. We got about six or seven pitches up, but it was just so cold. It was so cold that you could actually <laughs> melt water, fill up your water bottle, hang it on the inside of your portal edge, and just watch it crystallize. In like 15, just in before your eyes, yes, yeah, <laughs> it must have been 50 or 60 below. Because later we hiked out, and I remember in one of the huts, which had a thermometer, I walked out to, to you know use the natural bathroom, and <laughs> the temperature said negative 45. And it was, it felt balmy to me, as wow. and uh, so we've just been in this incredible cold snap, perhaps. 
but that we failed because of that. And so after that, I, I well, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. But, but the, the transition for me was actually uh, basically feeling like big walls were, were that, that was where I wanted to go. But then in 1986, I also um, got hit by a big storm on the south face of Half Dome. And we went up there with state-of-the-art equipment. You know, we had the best portal edges that were being made at the time and, and uh, synthetic bags. And But we went up there and we got caught in one of Yosemite's worst storms. There, I guess there were tornadoes down in Merced. and Crazy wind on that south face of Half Dome. It's the backside of Half Dome. It's in Little Yosemite Valley. And basically, in Little Yosemite Valley, when there's a storm, that whole valley just turns into a Venturi wind tunnel. And so we were getting just hammered by, by cold rain and huge winds. And then at night, it started to, everything started to freeze. So we're completely saturated by the storm. And, but what, ha- what happened is we had these three portal edges, three one-person portal edges. I was up there with Mike Corbett and Steve Bosky. And uh, the portal edges just couldn't withstand that kind of condition. The wind was just smacking them around the wall. And also the snow that was, that was loading them just exceeded their tensile strength essentially and one of them collapsed and they were all just barely hanging in there wow okay so we needed a rescue and uh, we got yep. we got rescued by the lamore navy base uh and we got plucked off by a helicopter and after that i actually was pretty humbled i'd say from okay because at, at that up to that point i felt like anything was possible i i could do anything, you know, on, on these big walls and survive anything and suffer any through any conditions. Yeah. But after nearly dying on that wall, I decided to take a break. <laughs> sure, okay. And so then that's where I went to Flagstaff. I moved to Flagstaff because of the good climbing there. And uh, and I started a business called A5 Adventures. We'll now take a quick break and get back to the show after this ad. Are you tired of drinking your morning coffee out of boring plain mugs? Look no further than Climbing on the Bookshelf podcast mugs. The mugs are designed with the avid climber in mind. With the show's unique design, you can show off your love for climbing literature and the podcast at the same time. Whether you're sitting down and listening to Climbing on the Bookshelf, a pro climber, or just starting out, the mugs are a perfect addition to your collection of climbing gear. But wait, are you looking for more ways to show your love of climbing for your favourite climbing literature podcast? Look no further than our exclusive Climbing on the Bookshelf unisex t-shirt. Not only does the unisex t-shirt look great with the show's logo, they're also incredibly comfortable to wear. The unisex t-shirt is perfect for any climbing activity, whether you're hiking to the crag or just lounging around waiting for your turn at the climbing gym to send your next proj. With different colours and sizes available, you'll look great even when you're sitting down and reading a mountain literature book, of course. How about a Climbing on the Bookshelf tote bag? This is the perfect accessory for carrying some of your climbing gear. You can even use it for non-climbing related shopping outings too. But why would you do that? You could put your groceries in it, put a picnic in it, maybe even that new mountain literature book or guide that you've been hankering after in your local bookshop. So, if you're a fan of climbing literature and love listening to Climbing on the Bookshelf, don't wait any longer to get your hands on our exclusive Climbing on the Bookshelf mugs, unisex t-shirt and tote bag. Did you get the message that the t-shirt is unisex? Or did I overdo it a bit? Order now and show the world your love for climbing and your favourite climbing literature podcast. See the link in the show notes or head over to Instagram at Climb Bookshelf where there's a link in the bio. Happy climbing and now 
back to the show. And my first product was a hammer, big wall hammer that hadn't been made for a long time. Nobody was really making a good hammer for, for uh, you know, big walls for putting in tetons. And, and uh, so I made a hammer, got it forged with Ajax Forge in Los Angeles. You know, there's a lot of finish work on those. So I, I set up a shop and, and started making those. And then I, I started working with Kyle Copeland, actually, who had already set up a few sewing businesses. And back then in the mid 80s, it was, it was a different commercial scene then. There's a lot of really innovative like makers all over the place, San Diego and California, East Coast, making gear for climbing, harnesses and, and okay. you know, all, you know, everything you know you can imagine for climbing was you, you usually bought it from these small companies rather than Black Diamond or well, Yeah, sure. Yeah. But you know, you you the gear and you'd have people like Dick Silly who was walking around parking lots and Joshua Tree <laughs> just rack full of like harnesses and chalk bags and <laughs> so you bought your gear locally, you know, from from other climbers who were making gear. And so I joined that that contingent of okay. business A five. And uh, and so Kyle Copeland joined up with me and he taught me how to sew basically. He he knew all about how to build a sewing table and what kind of sewing machines to buy and and, uh, and so I got set up with that and then started designing and making a better portal edge. Yeah, so so that experience on Half Dome, was, was was that your inspiration to, to make the portal edge better? Absolutely. I, I realized, like, that's the limitation. If you're going to do storm-proof, rather. If you're going to do LCAP wall in a remote, in, in, the, in the greater ranges, yeah. you know, you're going to get conditions like that. And that it's just impossible. And basically, up to that point, really, when you look at all the big walls that had been done, I mean, they've either been done alpine style or with a lot of fixed ropes, or they had yeah. really good natural ledges. But you know that okay. you know it was clear that there were a lot of walls out there that had incredible, or they were just incredibly good sufferers, like Charlie Porter <laughs> on uh, Asgard, you know, for seven days or something. You know, in, but to to actually. You know, even that is a lot of luck. You know, and like Charlie Porter, I'm yep. sure he, he lucked out in a way when he did some of those amazing climbs in the 70s in these remote areas. But most of the you know big walls that were being done in Patagonia and Baffin, they were done with a lot of fixed ropes. That was kind of the big wall style. Okay. Fix, 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 and uh, keep coming down to the ground. But, you know, that I, I grew up, you know, climbing in Yosemite, and I you know, that was the big division back in the 60s about climbing with or without fixed ropes. Uh, you know, that was okay. Will Robbins' big thing. It was like, no, you start from the ground, you know, you don't have fixed ropes, and you, you know, once you leave the ground, you're committed. So it's about the commitment really, yeah. that we were looking for. And so I realized, like, yeah, there, there wouldn't be, there, there's not going to be that next level of big wall climbing in these remote ranges until there was a better shelter that you could sure. handle point and survive any kind of storm. So that was my goal. Because it's quite a quite a niche thing to improve on. Um, were you were there any other uses that you thought that it could be it could be used for? It was it just purely for climbing that you had in mind? Oh yeah, just purely big wall climbing, really. Just yeah, do these multi big walls and be able to hang out in the storm. And that's basically sure. you know in the seventy. I mean in the eighties, people would go up and. If there was a storm, 
they would probably be saturated and cold and wet, and that was fine. You know, they probably wouldn't die in the state of the art Fermici ledges that were that were being made at the time. They weren't going to stay dry, and they probably were going to be so cold <laughs> that they were going to they were going to retreat. So, yeah, the idea was to create a shelter that was still light and easy to set up and compact, so you could actually survive and keep going. Really. So what so what was the weight of that first redesign that you did? The first one I made was for Mug Stump. He asked me to build him one for a route he was looking up to do up in Alaska. Um, okay. And so that one weighed, I, I think it was like 10 or 11 pounds, like five kilos. Uh, okay. And then the fly was another two kilos. And that's what I realized too. It's like nobody had been making flies out of anything heavier than like just regular tent fabric and i knew you know after half the <laughs> these flies were actually shredding in the wind uh i knew yes. that to use a heavier material for that for poor ledge because you know the conditions on a wall you're up there basically in the sky um yeah and, and you're not on in the ground the wind will, will always be a slower speed but when you're up in the sky you know the winds can be really furious you get the full force of it yeah yeah and so and so I, you know, beefed up the fly material, and I basically engineered a frame that could really withstand, you know, not just body weight for two people, but to actually hit, you could actually put three, four people in it and bounce up and down. In fact, that's how we tested our, our products. <laughs> if I ever built a new portalite, I'd always test it by getting everybody in the shop. Okay, let's get everybody in the well, Let's shop. load them in. So <laughs> something broke. Once I could see what broke, it was like, yeah. okay. Let's reinforce this, and, sure. and so, so, yeah. and that's really the minimum. And I still recommend that. I, I help a lot of people make portalages over the years, okay. and I always recommend like build your first one, break it, and then repair it, and you know figure out how how to make it better. Sure. So yeah. how many how many iterations of the of the portalage have there been, and, and what's the latest one? Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> probably. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I've thought about dozens and dozens of portal designs. It's sort of a, a obsession, I guess you could say. You know, try, making them more compact. Really, the full. That's one thing I, I think that's missed in some of the modern offerings. It's like you want it to be really compact, so you can just pack it away. And so I've made portal edges that you can fit in a day pack, or you know, yeah. Um, but basically, yeah, I, I've played around with dozens of designs and i've probably pictured most of them on my website called bigwalls.net okay um, but but originally in the 80s i was working on just a straight um, rectangular frame with block corners and yeah uh, and so we made three different sizes of that one person a two person and we made some three person ones and some big bigger three two person ones that so you could if you didn't mind the extra weight and extra larger pack size, you could have a little more comfort. Um, yeah. And so... Were they mainly used for kind of bigger expeditions? Yeah, I mean, expeditions? basically every, every, I mean, uh, pretty much like 95 or more percent of all big walls that have been done since the 80s yeah. were using my design. You know, in the 90s, it was, a, the A5 Portal Edge was the, the portal edge that you knew you could go to Himalaya and and you would survive. And so, yeah, they were used for all sorts of amazing. So, so you were definitely redesigning it 
the correct way then if people yeah. a lot of people were using them. Yeah, and people like Silva Paro, you know, you know, the Cubers were using my four ledges and fantastic. Um, you know, I could list I mean basically any any of the great big walls that were done in the late eighties and nineties were using the A five because they were they were you know, they were built to 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 really withstand that kind of exposure. Yeah, um, sure. That's incredible. Well done you. Oh thank you. Yeah. And then, <laughs> But yeah, so I did that throughout the '90s and just kept refining them. And uh, and every refinement, I would test myself. I would go somewhere with them and, okay. and with them and make sure they were the best. And, and if there's any way to improve them, I would take notes and get back to the shop and and refine everything. Uh, but I was always looking for lightweight, so I, I didn't really go for all the features you might see on today's photo ledges, like beer coolers and. You know, <laughs> you know, there's all sorts of extra stuff. Well, home comforts you could slot in. Yeah, I mean, I was just making the most efficient, sort of lightest weight possible. And uh, yeah, so back to my climbing. And so one of the one of the truest tests for these portal edges was in 1992. I was invited to join the Swiss expedition, the Great Triangle Tower, and uh, and so I designed a lightweight titanium portal edge that only weighed about 10 pounds less than five kilos uh, it was a compact one it was a little bit smaller but i didn't mind curling up and you know it wasn't about comfort it was about survival and uh, but it was very lightweight and, uh, and we we tested that on great Chicago tower <laughs> on a 18-day climb there they were called the grand voyage the grand voyage yes that was very brave did you did i presume you tested it before um, no. You took it. Oh, you, you mean, just I, took it straight out and tested it there and then. The titanium one, I I probably did test it in the shop, but I just felt confident that that was. I mean, yeah. mostly we're making them a bit heavier and a bit more robust, but I felt like for a trip like that, we really needed to really just be as as lightweight as possible. But yeah, it was it was concern. It wasn't like I was that confident. <laughs> we got caught in a storm about nineteen thousand feet, almost okay. six meters. Yeah. <laughs> really a fierce storm and, and usually these storms on walls you know, the wind hits the wall and then moves upward right so you yeah you actually get lifted up sometimes and we were getting slammed for two nights on at nineteen thousand feet and of course you know if our ledge had failed we would probably perish really that'd be a different story yes you can't really retreat in those conditions and and uh, so but you know so definitely it was Trying, doing some ca- engineering calculations in my head. Am I, am I sure of this? So, have you got any other than other than um, the portal edge, which is, I guess, a, a continuous redesign and, and refinement um, of it? Um, have you got any other things in the pipeline that you think will be another advantage to climbing? Oh, in the pipeline, yeah, I do have this idea for an t- expedition tent. I, when you see these uh, campers in, in Everest Base Camp and you see the tents getting blown down, and I, I think there's a lot of room there. And, but I think, uh, yeah, I could go on and on about tent design. But, you know, I've been, it's not just portal edges that I've designed. I've designed, um, you know, hooking tetons and nuts, yeah. clean climbing nuts and hammers, of course. And, sure. uh, Trail holder. So I've tinkered with a lot of different designs, um, but I'm a bit like a moth to the flame because <laughs> making climbing gear is a tough way to make money. 
especially now, I think I really feel for the small innovators today because the big companies really do have the markets wrapped up. And uh, I mean, they did then too, but there's always niches. Niches were easier to jump into back then. But uh, yeah, but back to Portages, I, I, I guess, you know, there was a 20 year gap where I didn't really think about designing too many Portages. But in 2017, so I sold my company in North Face in 1997, and I worked for them as a senior product manager for two years. And I was not only in charge of the A5 line, but I was actually developing new tents for them and, and some waterproof packs and different things. So that was those were productive years, but um, that ended, and, uh, and basically... You know, I had to figure out something else to do. So yeah, sure. I actually became a river guide after that, and worked in the Grand Canyon for five years. Okay, yep. But uh, just to finish up on portages, then in 2017, I watched the movie uh, Don Wall, and there's a scene where maybe it was in the in the, in the offcuts, but there's a scene where Kevin Jorgensen is just struggling with the ledge, and this is yes. the This is a ledge I actually designed that <laughs> went from. A5 to North Face to Black Diamond, but they had added like a lot of stuff like a spreader bar and all sorts of, you know, they just added a lot of extra fabric that made it just more easier to tangle, I guess. I don't know, but you know, yeah. I've never seen anybody uh, have that much trouble. Okay. So I thought, okay, well, you know, that uh, that's embarrassing for me because the Cliff Cabana, that's my name for the, the bigger portal edge. Black Diamond's still making it 20 years after I designed it, or 20, 22 years after it was originally designed. And that can't just be the state of the art after 22 years. You know, there must be a better way that, you know, there must be something better that could be done. And so I, I actually started climbing again a little bit with my kids because we live in Australia and I was introducing them to rock climbing at okay. Rapleys, which is uh, yep. great, probably the greatest crag in the world in australia so that's that's just is it west of melbourne isn't it i think yeah is that right yeah kind of northwest and uh, yeah i mean it's just a wonderful crack because there's there's like easy climbs that are just you know three pitches of just incredible exposure and then there's every level you want um that's why i love it it's 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 a great place where you go you can just start climbing easy and then by the end of a week trip you might be back to like you know for me climbing 510 again and 511 even but it's uh i just love it there um but anyway so i met yeah. we're there and he he's like why don't you make portages again you know the main now are kind of crap and uh <laughs> and so i was encouraged by that and i just started oh yeah i think i had some ideas but i started playing with with ben tubing you know curved curved tube instead of block corners and that opened up a whole new world of design possibilities and I spent three years uh, sort of developing new designs. I probably made about 100 portal edges at that time. I wasn't really making them uh, to make money, but just to sort of develop the idea. So, and, and it's not just making a one-off. When you're making a product, it's, you can, it's really fun and easy to make a one-off. But to actually do the production of consistent quality, that's a challenge. Just to see if this new design could be produced, basically, and so I would make these batches of five or ten portal edges at a time, and I would get them out to climbers, and uh, a lot of climbers I knew, and I'd get feedback and and evolve it. So that that's my design process is like you got to use it 
And I actually did get back on the wall after 20 years with a friend of mine, Simon Mintz, and we climbed Australia's uh, premier big wall called Ozymandias. And it's a, not, it's a moderate route, but, uh, but uh, you know, it was, it was a tough one. And, uh, you know, and basically over a three-year period, I came up with a whole new concept in Portal Edges, which I call the Delta Two-Person, Delta Two-P ledge. Okay. And it's a, it's a foot out ledge. And at first, when they first made it, I wasn't really quite sure. In fact, I wasn't even sure I was going to have it as a foot out ledge. I was just making a different delta trapezoid shape. And uh, yeah. when I realized how st- stable it was, so much more stable than a rectangular ledge, which can seesaw uh, when the long side's against the wall, this delta ledge was just incredible. It was like, wow, this is, I was surprised as, as anyone really when I've saw how stable the, the design was and it will be the future of portal edges right i don't make them anymore I've, I've made all my work open source and there's three or four makers who are making my designs yeah. but but you know i'm pretty confident that this design with a foot out configuration where your head's to the wall and your feet are out in the air side uh two people side by side that way that is the future of portal edge design and sure. it's just be, you know just like ones I was making back in the eighties, it's just gonna take a few years for the for the major manufacturers to catch up, I guess. But they Excellent. will. They Thank just you. Black Diamond just came out with a sort of a clone of my earliest D4 portraits <laughs> with curved corners. And so, you know, they're basically just two or three years behind. And I've offered to help them. You know, I, I actually know a few people at the company and I, I email them every once in a while going, you know, if you ever want to read read <laughs> help, I'm not really I don't, I'm not asking for royalties. I just like to see better climbing gear for climbers. Um, yeah, sure. But they'll eventually come up with some version of it. I'm sure. That's if amazing. It, that's that's yeah. incredible. That that what you have given to the climbing world has opened up so many more um, walls and and longer stays on the walls in a safe environment. That's that's incredible. Oh, thank you. Yeah, as you say, it's a niche and. You know, it's becoming more mainstream. When I saw Don Wallace, that, I mean, that was a huge change in the public awareness of what big wall climbing is. And yeah, they had one each, didn't they? No, did they yeah, had one each, or it was. I think they did. Yeah, but I, mm. they had two. But you know, they were cameramen, so I think they had a team of four, really. Well, you saw two on the on the on the screen, anyway. Yeah. So yeah. But yes, I'm sure yeah, the rest of the crew and everybody had. Yeah. them as well so but that's amazing that's incredible well well done that's, that's I mean, that, fantastic that's still, that's still a good ledge that black diving cliff combined it's just outdated you know and probably yeah. heavy compared to what you could do and so these the curved corner design is really a more efficient way to create a you know a loop a hoop frame basically it's all open source if, if any manufacturers are out there feel free to grab my plans and start tinkering and remember to test <laughs> yes. first one. Yes, definitely. Break it. Yes. <laughs> oh, fantastic! Oh, thanks for all that that history of of everything that you've done and what you've brought to climbing. It's amazing. So fascinating to to hear someone talk enthusiastically about it. It's it's fantastic. Thank you for that. Oh well, thank you, Stuart. Yeah, I, I, I'm just looking at the time. Have we been speaking for 45 minutes? Are it's we... something like that. Well, well, I must say you've been speaking for about 45 minutes, <laughs> and I've been saying yes mm, and things like that. So yeah. One wondering... thing about big wall climbing is like 
it was always considered just through aid climbing all the time. But for me, big wall climbing was about really being a solid tree climber and cutting loose and being being fast and efficient. And right now, I think alpine big walls are are probably a, a big focus uh, in the mountains. But I do think that you know the, the kind of more technical kind of Great Frango uh, East Face walls will sort of have a renaissance. They were really you know in the nineties that was really the key. And uh, and when they do, you know, it's the kind of skills that you need. You need to be a really well-rounded climber. I think so it's not just about being a good A climber. It's being a good ice climber and a good pre climber and a good mixed climber. Yeah. <laughs>